Welcome to Story Comic Presents, where we interview amazing storytellers and artists. This is episode 289. I'm your host, Barty Smith of StoryComic.com. We're truly excited to have with us the internationally acclaimed artist and highly talented creator of Wolf's Head, Vaughn Allen. Hello. Vaughn, how are you doing? I am doing good. Thanks you. Thank you very, very much for having me on. This is great. So I read Wolf's Head, and oh, I am really excited to talk to you about that. And so do you want to give people a little bit of background on how you got into uh, writing comics and, and creating stories and also a little bit of your synopsis of, of Wolf's Head as well? Because it's a pretty interesting story. Sure, sure. I'll do both. Yeah. Um, I'm weird, I think, with a lot of comic book creators, particularly artists, because I did not draw as a kid, um, wow. I actually came to art very, very late in life. I didn't start till I was about 25. Um, and a lot of that was a, I was very insecure and I, I really felt particularly as a kid that artists were kind of born and not made. And that, you know, you, you sort of knew you were an artist from when you popped out into the world. <laughs> and when you did that, um, you know, you somehow like almost, and I, I mean, it's a, it's a cliche, but almost being born with like a crayon or a pencil in your hand. Right. And it was, it was, it, I, I kept that sort of the stereotype that, you know, I couldn't do this. I mean, I drew a little bit as a kid, but it never went anywhere. And I certainly didn't grow or what have you. And I wound up working at a bookstore when I was in my like around 20 years old in my early 20s and it was an independent bookstore and I met a lot of uh, writers and some artists uh, through the course of that with like book events and whatnot and I talked with them and it sounds so naive now but in talking with them and, you know, I'd ask them pesky questions and stuff and the um, well, you know, because I'm nosy and I was curious and it was dawning on me slowly but surely that you know writers and artists have bad days and it is not something that necessarily comes easy to everybody and yeah like there's the mozarts of the world that are geniuses and what have you but a lot of people struggle and you you through trial and error you get stronger as you do this so you have to maintain discipline and you have to learn you have to have an open mind you know and what have you so I basically was starting to absorb this and I sat down with a copy of a book called uh, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain by Betty Edwards, uh, okay. sort of a legendary book, and literally started to learn to draw. And I found I liked it. And wow. I found that uh, her book, and I, I still fondly remember that book, is she has a really interesting way of helping you as a non-visual artist start to learn how to do things in a real, and it's an amazing because it's a book. It's not like you're in her class or anything. It's a book, but you, she has a really intuitive way of helping you get over a lot of the insecurities and frustrations that can happen with learning to draw. So that was the starting point. And I ran into sort of an, a really quick quandary after that, because I was like, okay, I, I, 
I, I can I can draw a little bit. I'm not very good yet. And I know there's a lot I still need to learn, like anatomy and perspective and what have you. But I want to do comics because I had a love affair for comics as a, a very young kid. I mean, I started getting into comics um, when I moved to Ottawa here when I was around eight years old. And comics for me um, were a significant escape because my mom was not very well. She was dealing with schizophrenia. Uh, there was a lot of mental illness and poverty. And, you know, it. I when I, I found comics uh, when I moved to Ottawa through meeting friends and whatnot. And I got introduced to comic book stores and I just fell in love with the medium. But I never, I never thought I could do this. And when I was starting to work with Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain at the bookstore, I I was like, okay, well, this this book is great, but mm, this is I, I don't know how I don't even know the vocabulary of how to do this. And what's funny is comics so often, particularly in the West, I mean, not not so much in France or Japan, obviously, or anything like that, but there's so much dismissed as an art form. And to do comics well, you I mean, you need to know figure drawing, you need to know like color for color work, certainly brush and ink or pen and ink work for, you know, for inking you. I mean, your perspective, color, like color and light theory and how that, you know, interacts like there's just so many things you have to learn and then be able to kind of create a synthesis with. And that took time that that took a lot of time. And there were a lot of false starts and whatnot before I started to get even decent at it. And I mean, you know, I look back and I, I probably showed my work before I was really ready for prime time. And my initial work that's out there, you know, was, was pretty, pretty rough. Um, but you learn by doing, you know, you, you, you have to, you, you put it out there and you, you, you fail, you fall on your face all the time and you get stronger and you keep going. And there was something about it. And I can never quite articulate what it is about comics and about art that, despite the difficulties and the frustrations and whatnot, it, it didn't stop me from keeping going. And I, um, it took a long time to get to a point where I feel now, like I'm a professional, like I, my work, the quality of the work I think is pretty strong. My draftsmanship is a lot better than it ever was. And, you know, it's just, it was, it was a fight. It was a, it was a big fight. So, Turning to Wolf's Head, I mean, Wolf's Head is probably my most mature work in the, in, in the sense of me as an artist. Like it's, I, I felt I could like handle a story like this where before I don't know if I could have, um, the, my earlier stuff was a little bit autobiographical though from a fictional lens and then some kids oriented stuff, but I was still struggling and with Wolf's Head, a lot of things sort of came together um, where I felt I could do it. And, and the story is really, it's about a young woman named Lauren who is kind of down on her luck and she is struggling with trying to find herself. Uh, she had decided to be a cop and realized to her horror that this is not the world that she wanted to be in, but she still wanted to help people as, as right. you know, sort of the most aspirational versions of what policing can be. And when she realized she, that wasn't it for her, she quit, but quitting meant, Oh my God, like, I don't have any money. I am, you know, come from a poor background. Like, what am I going to do? Mm -hmm. And as she's trying to, just as she's trying to work on this stuff, it turns out that her mom who is working just as a like low paid janitor kind of work discovered uh, to her amazement that there is this, 
new life form that she doesn't really understand, but this what basically turns out to be an early form of an artificial intelligence. And one of the things I really wanted to do with the story is not do a stereotype of, and it's funny because I did it, I started it before all of the contemporary stuff about AI is in the news, but I wanted to do sort of like the anti-Terminator or anti even sometimes Star Trek where it's like, oh my God, this robot is going to replace humanity and wants to kill everything. And I was like, I wanted to do a story about an AI that is a baby that's learning and growing and actually has a great deal of affection for human beings and right. is sort of learning. And so you, did you kind of fall in like, you know, basically like Asimov's like three rules of robotics in a way for this AI to follow a bit? No, I didn't. I didn't do it that way because I, I started off with the AI. Um, so basically the corporation wants to use the AI as a war fighting uh, right. machine. And what they didn't really realize is that this AI has zero interest in, in doing that and was right. already struggling against it. Um, so it, it it's not even to a point like the Asimov three laws situation wouldn't even apply because it was designed or the hope for was that it would be used to kill. It would be used to harm human beings through direct actions. Right. So it, what interested me when I was sort of brainstorming the, the story itself was I was like, what happens when somebody, in this case, a machine, but when somebody is put into a situation where they want no part of that? And what do they do when the corporation, in this case, is, is not willing to allow them to, you know, find their own pathway? And a lot of the tension of the story is Lauren's sort of developing awareness that the AI actually is decent and that it's um, it's not a trick or, you know, her mom hasn't made a catastrophic mistake. And Lauren starts to, you know, slowly but surely develop a lot of affection for the AI and that affection is also reciprocated back. So so for the, for uh, those that are listening, check out the show note links to go to vonallen.com and that's V-O-N-A-L-L-A-N.com and, and, and check out a link to, to, to the book Wolf's Head. Because when we're talking about an AI and we're talking about robotics, there's not, it's not like Iron Giant or anything or an R2-D2. It's not an actual physical robot. It's almost this liquidy kind of like T-1000 uh, situation here. Yep. Yep. Oh, and that was done relatively deliberately to sort of play with that because, you know, and I debated, am I going too far? But I, I, I think it works in the context of the story fairly well that this thing, and I mean, we'll see how far I can get with it, but it's one of the fun things was I wanted like a baby to have this not fully formed thing that you could really as a reader judge it too much because the form of it itself is really indistinct. So, right. you know, if I had made it, well, like Iron Giant is a good example or, you know, any type of like classic robot with, uh, you know, hard edges or what have you, it might seem more either malevolent or people might read into, you know, more personality. And I wanted that to be a very strongly developing aspect of the story that, what it is, is, and what it looks like and how it manifests is sort of fluid because it hasn't found itself yet. It, it's still working on this thing. 
with the sort of the loose idea that the the corporation behind it sort of gave it these abilities that even they themselves can't quite understand how it happened. And one of the plot points of the book is the man who nominally invented it, a guy named Jeremy Hamilton, can't figure out how he did it so he can't replicate it. And he is frustrated to no end that he can't figure out why this thing does what it does and not what he programmed it or thought he programmed it to do. And that's part of the fun of the story too. So it's kind of like a ghost in the machine kind of analogy on that too as well then? Yeah. I never thought of it that way, but in some ways, yeah, yeah. You know, it is, it is just, um, because it, I, I, it's, it, it becomes more of a subplot in the series, but it's, you know, this man who is like, he's desperate to be able to, you know, recreate this thing because he was sort of, you know, okay, fine. This stupid thing is on its own out there. Okay. We're going to work to get it back, but don't worry, everybody. I can replicate it. I, I, oh, I, I, I can't. Oh my God. Like, what, what do you mean? I can't. And then he's, well, we got to get that stupid thing back. And I like ripping out my hair, you know, trying to figure out how, how to, I got to get this thing work. And he, and he can't. So it's like, um, it's kind of fun to do what is an antagonist, but an antagonist who's like baffled by what happened and cannot figure out to save his life. And it, it, it's fairly existential because he is uh, like a, works at a corporation. He is very high up, but he has people he still answers to. And they, there is sort of a, a running plot is that they have expectations and they want answers and he can't answer them because he doesn't know what the hell happened. <laughs> and so have, talk about the world building aspect on this. How did you, uh, is this something that was kind of an almost like the shape of the AI? Is this, was this an organic experience for you as well? Or did it actually, you already had, you already had an outline for the, the for the full story arc ahead of time. Yeah. Well, the way I write, it's, it's a little bit different is I tend to write. So in a way, this is very contemporary. Like a lot of people, I tend to write in arcs. So I had a pretty good idea of broad stroke, beginning, middle end of where I wanted the story to go, where I think I'm a little bit different. And I, I don't mean this in a good or bad way is just, I really like the power of sequential storytelling. So in a periodical comic form, I have a strong belief that it, I guess the technical phrase, a literary phrase would be episodic closure is okay. for the most part, I like having something in an individual issue, have a beginning, middle and an end. So that was not as uh, blueprinted out or clear cut for me. I didn't. So as I approach an issue, that is something I solve on an issue by issue basis. So I had broad strokes of what Lauren's situation was, what her mom's situation was, the situation with the AI, the situation with Hamilton. But I part of the fun for me with doing the story is it's not it's not like I've I, I scripted out like in the case of the first book, like the, the, the first collection, the first six issues, which is what they were of that story is each story. Uh, each issue rather was sort of built as its own story with enough threads that continue to build, hopefully, so that by the end of the book or the end of issue six, you're like, wow, that each stands on its own, but something more is developing. Right. And, you know, I, I'm always hesitant. I, I don't, I think people sometimes will be like, well, 
if you start referencing titles you like, you can get pigeonholed of, oh, well, oh, that, that's a Silver Age thing or, 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 oh, that's a Bronze Age thing. And it's, it's not so much that is I like stories for me that have, um, well, episodic closure is the best way. And I actually looked back right. at people like Charles Dickens for this is when Dickens was writing, uh, people forget this now, but m his work was serialized. Right. So it was episodic, and what yeah. have you. Yeah, it was very episodic. And one of the concerns he had, and I did a bit of research on that was, well, it's very similar to contemporary serialized comics is, okay, I'm going to have this ongoing thing. I think Pickwick was like over 20, 20 different issues. So how do I make sure that people can jump on board on any type of issue and on top of it, get something satisfying so they will hopefully come back. So I did, I didn't want to just look at comics. I wanted to look outside the medium of comics and go, okay, well, how have other, other creators in similar, but different art forms like, you know, prose or literary fiction or what have you handle how you do episodic storytelling. And I kept coming back to Dickens because I found actually a fair amount of research actually has been done on this, where they where they talked about his, um, you know, scholars now talk about how he was working on building episodic structure with episodic closure at the same time. And it, it's fascinating to me. It's endlessly fascinating. And I find it very interesting that a lot of and I don't mean to judge them because there are advantages too, but with the so-called decompressed storytelling, that that aspect, particularly with sort of modern corporate comics and like Marvel and DC and whatnot, that seems to be a bit of a lost art form compared to previous decades where you will often pick up an issue of whatever and you're in the middle of a storyline there's nothing to orient a new or lapsed reader to help you understand what's happening, you know, in that story. And often the story doesn't have an ending. It has uh, things have happened and you have to buy the next issue or the next series of issues to get the resolution. That might be fine for a trade paperback or a graphic novel collection, but I think it damages somewhat and to what degree is an arguable case, but I do think it damages how people um, actually interact with the form of comics. Now that doesn't mean, and this is why I always have to be careful and it's a hard thing. Like it doesn't mean that I'm arguing for, Oh, every single comic that's ever done on, you know, by anybody should be a beginning, middle end story. And you know, what have you, you can read them in any order. It doesn't, no, no, no. Like, I'm not saying that I'm saying that there is a way to build what I would call subplots. I'm not sure if that's the correct term, but like longer narrative hooks that take longer to resolve, but still give some degree of closure of a story in a particular issue. Right. And that Wolf said is really my first attempt to put that into practice, to see what I can do to do that. And I, it's hard for me to judge it, but that that is definitely part of my sort of storytelling thesis going into it. And I'm pretty happy with it, but I mean, readers will have to be the ones that as always have to judge this right. stuff. Where do you see the future of comics? I think as a medium, it's very healthy because mm -hmm. I think there is something about the medium of comics 
And one thing I'll always, I always like to point to is that it is remarkably democratic as mm. an art form. Um, even with something like animation, which in some ways is a sister to comics, it's very difficult to do anything but very short animations by yourself. And I mean, mm. there are software tools now that are facilitating, um, you know, that an individual person could do more, but it's very hard. And so I think there, there's something about the medium of comics where if you're working traditionally paper, pencil, ink, or markers, or something of some sort, and with, you know, some type of way of scanning it, either with a camera or a scanner or whatever, you can put your work out there. So I, I'm not that worried at all of like, not worried at all about the medium of comics. Okay. What exactly that looks like, what type of format we're talking, if we're talking print or online and how the panel arrangements work, that like, that's a separate issue, but comics, that sequential nature, I'm not concerned about the industry, particularly in the West is a completely different question. I mean, there's been so much just recently, the distribution changes with the ending of diamonds monopoly, right. the, you know, DC at first breaking away. And then, you know, Marvel, I mean, not completely breaking away from diamond, but going with penguin random house image just recently, you know, going with lunar, I think like it's the industry is in a great deal of flux and, Part of it is if you ever look at um, the pricing and I did, a, you know, a little essay, you know, about a decade ago now, even a bit longer, just looking at the prices of contemporary of what were then contemporary comics against the United States federal minimum wage and the ability of people to purchase periodical comics. And it's incredibly unaffordable just right. from that point of view. And that's not so much a critique of the prices of comics. So I think some people interpreted that it's also a, a critique on how crappy wages are yeah. for, for people. Yeah. It's, they can't afford to buy literally all that much because I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's still $7 and 25 cents as you know, a federal minimum wage. And that's awful you know, for right. human beings to actually live on, let alone buying things for, you know, for pleasure or what have you. At the same time, where the industry has really diversified is libraries and, you know, bookstores and online marketplaces and what have you, not to mention getting into like, you know, webtoons and, and different structures of how comics look and being able to read comics on your phone or on a computer or of any sort. Like that is so different than, I mean, obviously the technology is different than, you know, when I was a kid, but the idea that libraries and bookstores would be carrying comics. Like I vividly remember, and I actually used to work at the Ottawa Public Library when I was a teenager, I didn't carry comics. They carried a little bit of bon dessiné, you know, some bon dessiné, you know, for, for French language kids. And there was not all that much. And I still point to Mao's, Art Spiegelman's Mao's, because right. not so much because of the content, though that's obviously very important, but because it won a special Pulitzer Prize. And when it won right. the special Pulitzer Prize, it helped put comics, it wasn't the only thing, but it certainly helped put comics on the map for sort of the, you know, the more literary, like, ooh, wait, wait, this, I, I thought they were just superheroes or, you know, whatever stereotype you want to use. 
And then, you know, I mean, certainly Jeff Smith's bone and, you know, on and on and on. There's just been a transformation where there were picture books for kids and there were obviously illustrated prose novels, but publishers like Scholastic were not doing comics, right. uh, you know, of any format of any type. And like, that's been just a quantum shift in, you know, not only what gets made, but you know, where it's positioned and how kids can find them. Kids are not reliant on going into one of the 3,500 or so comic book shops. You know, they, there, there are a lot of other places where a kid can find uh, a comic and that's wonderful. And I think online, um, particularly with platforms like Webtoons, but you know, old school web comics anyway, that, that is probably going to do nothing but grow. And that is, I think, very health, very healthy right. for the art form. What do you enjoy most about being a comic creator? Honestly, I think the biggest thing is challenging myself often to see what will happen next. And it's, the, I mean, you know, I could get like, I, I love learning. So there are one of the things I find most rewarding about the art form, broadly speaking, is like, I like learning as a writer and I like learning as an artist, like a visual artist. So um, not that long ago, I did a deep dive. I found there was a weakness in my work with some of the, the way I was approaching uh, tones and values. And, you know, I revamped uh, how I was approaching color and I was also revamped more recently. It's not so much in, in those issues of Wolf's Head, but how I was approaching using value to, you know, not just um, like specifically like hatching and some zipatones, but I was looking at both how manga artists and then traditional, you know, artists like Wally Wood and what have you were using it. And I, I tried to learn. I tried to, you know, explore what I could do with it and how I could incorporate it into my own style. And I find that always rewarding. And the same with writing is like, I've learned how, you know, hopefully how to better approach writing a story and breaking a story and approaching it both in an episodic way and then in a more arc based way. But at the same time, like really the funnest thing is, is seeing how like how an issue is going to, you know, turn out. Like, I mean, the best example or the best way to define this is by an example. So Wolf said, the first hardcover is the first six issues, but I'm working on issue 18 now of the ongoing series. And those are mostly on digital format. And where I'm at now, I never thought I would be just in a narrative place uh, for Wolf's Head when I started writing issue one. And that's a lot of fun for me is, is I've, Lauren has gone places with the story and the situation with her mom. Uh, there is a, a dog that's also a main character in the story, her mom's dog that plays a big role. And it, it's just the story. That's one of the things that excites me about sequential storytelling is it's a lot of fun. And I've done it to do a beginning, middle end graphic novel that's designed as such. But sequential storytelling, figuring out, you know, where the story is taking you is for me always exciting. It's a great deal of fun. <laughs> And it's uh, that I really think at the end of the day is just like, you know, I wrap an issue and then I'm like, huh, geez, I, okay, I got to figure out where the hell I'm going with this next and, you know, what's going to happen and how this is going to play out and what are the consequences? Like, I love asking questions like that. Right. And that, that is a truly exciting part 
of of what for me makes comics comics and you, you can you know, i mean you can capture the same thing in like a novel or a film or whatever but there, there's something about the pace of comics you know there's there's something exciting about the, the that magic of how how comics go and it's uh it's such a unique art form compared to so many others what i love about your work is like you do you really do well with just having engaging conversations between characters talk to us a little bit about how that process is of how you actually write dialogue for your characters well the dialogue it's actually this is kind of funny is one of the things i realized when I was working on Wolf's Head more so than previous work is I kind of did a breakdown. So this goes also to, to learning is I did a breakdown on both comics from like the 1960s and different eras and contemporary right. comics. And I did some research to try to go like exactly how many words, captions, speech balloons, even thought balloons, how many words can you put on a, on a, an individual comic book page, like standard right. form? you know, American Canadian style and how, like what becomes too much and what doesn't like what works, what's the happy balance. So I started from there and I made sort of detailed notes and I literally broke down every single like sort of page that I would use, like everything from a splash page to like 16 panels, I think I did and sort of worked out, okay, like based on an overall word count, which is around 235, 240 words overall, how does that break down on a panel by panel and balloon by balloon basis? This is fascinating. Something really interesting has happened with the medium of comics. And at the right. same time, it started to dawn on me that um, artists like Steve Ditko and, you know, even Jack Kirby, to some extent, were often using nine panel pages. Uh, like Ditko is renowned for it. And even Kirby was using six, seven, eight, nine, you know, panels. And there's not like, right. not a hard and fast rule, but they would often use uh, a lot of panels. And that's another thing that has changed with a lot of contemporary, I mean, again, American, you know, English language comics is a lot of comics are down to three or four panels. So <sighs> less words, less panels. And then of course, one of the big ones is the way the gutter space is defined, that, that wonderful space between panels that help you actually navigate comics and the sequential storytelling of this, and people like Scott McCloud have written about this quite a bit, is there's also been sort of like a weird fusion where there's so many like design things and overlapping of panels and almost the elimination of the gutter space. I would argue in many ways that comics are a lot harder to read. So anyway, okay, so that aside, but that gave me some ballparks of what I needed to look at. So when I write, I tend to overwrite dialogue. So okay. in the editing process, using all the guidelines I just spoke about, I'll tend to bring it back down. And then it's, you know, I, I basically did quite a bit of research and just sort of my own, you know, my own affection for certain authors and whatnot of like going, you know, it's sort of the classic, if I read out loud some of this dialogue and closed my eyes, could I tell who's talking? You know, you don't want all the characters to sound yeah. the same. So... Right. Lauren is a good example is she speaks in a particular way, but her mum has a pronounced sort of French accent, particularly when it comes to swearing. So she tends to yeah. swear in French and the two women do not, hopefully, you know, from my point of view, do not at all sound alike. And that sort of carries on is Hamilton has a more, 
uh, I don't know if aristocratic would be the right way, but a more privileged language. So he tends to use bigger words, not very many contractions and whatnot. And you sort of, I sort of played this game mm-hmm. through it all. And then, of course, the AI, uh, because the AI is a baby and is learning, the AI actually generally speaks in musical tones. And, you know, playing with that was sort of interesting, too. So the the rhythm of it becomes, uh, so the, how to say this, like, the structural approach is what I've got this scene. Okay. So I I've written a scene and I know how many pages I've got for this scene. So just to pick something, I've got three pages to do this scene because when I, when I broke down the issue, this is what I, what I gave it. This is what this scene has to accomplish. This is the characters that are in this scene. And this is the thrust of what's happening. Like the, these are what Lauren wants to do. These are the obstacles she's trying to, you know, whatever. So then it's trying to figure out the best way to use dialogue to get across what, where she's at, what she's trying to do, who she's talking with and their, their situation. And in the back of my mind, and I sort of always leave notes to myself constantly to remind me is, does the reader understand Mm -hmm. what I'm trying to do? Because to me, and again, this is not a right or wrong thing. It's a, comics are art, so there's no right way or one size fits all policy. But for me, I want my comics to be very comprehensible, and I don't okay. want to read, like read a scene or read an issue and go, "What? What? What the hell just happened? Like, I who who are these people and what are they doing? Like, I don't understand." So that for me is anathema, unless you're right. doing very, very deliberately, like you you have a very specific point in mind. For me, there are no rules, so it's up to, you know, individual creators to solve this or to tackle it. But that's sort of what I think about is, can I make, you know, what is the function of the scene? What am I trying to do with the story? And, you know, how does the dialogue? And I I don't know. I mean, dialogue is in some ways its own art. So if you're asking me like, well, how do you choose? I don't know the characters. Like it sounds good to me. I try to verbalize it and make sure I read it out loud so that it has its own kind of rhythm and it doesn't sound mechanical. It sounds like an actual human being would talk, but that's probably one of the hardest things to do. Was it, was it Cormac McCarthy? I think it was Cormac McCarthy who remove like almost all punctuation and sort of like quotation marks and what have you. So you very rarely read, I think it's Cormac McCarthy that you very rarely read like, you know, Bob turned to Fred and said, quote, (laughs) and then, you know, and Fred said in reply to Bob, like you you don't get that. He's, he kind of throws you in and it's, and that, that can work. That can be very, you know, with comics, it's, you're always going to have the speech balloon. So it's a, it's a different thing, but I was, I was like, I never want to lose readers. I, I want right. readers to be able to understand what I'm doing, what I'm saying. And at the end of the day, if somebody like my feeling is, is if somebody doesn't like my work, that's okay. If somebody mm-hmm. doesn't understand my work and is baffled with it, then I failed. Then I've just right. miserably failed. And that, that'll bum me out for days because I, if you like it or and if you don't like it, but you understand it, good. We're, we're, we're good. If you, if you read it and you're just like, I don't understand who these characters are. I don't know, like Lauren. Okay. I don't understand what her motivation is or what she's trying to do like that. That's the worst. So 
I try very hard and I'm very lucky because my wife is a professional editor and she is, um, she works for the government, but she's had a great deal of editing experience. And so she always is looking at my work and is always like, I, I sort of pester her with these type of details. Um, and I could get you the issue. I don't remember it offhand, but Jim Shooter, back when he was uh, editor in chief at Marvel, actually did in a couple of his little columns talked about, you know, what for him and therefore for Marvel at the time made a good story. And it was things like, you know, do do characters have clear goals? Like, you know, are they trying to accomplish something? What, you know, are they failing? You know, like on and on and on. And I, I tend to think about that type of stuff a lot too, is to make sure that goals and motivations and obstacles and whatnot are very, very clear. And and not in a hopefully like didactic way, or I'm like, like hitting you over the head with it, but in a way that at, if I've done my job right, it's very, very subtle. And the reader is oriented in a way that they're never questioning like why these things are happening or you know who they're like i always want things like that to be very very clear but very very sort of intuitive as you're going through the story let me ask you von if if people want to pick up your book and read this where's the best place they could go to right now for the book, for the hardcover, I mean, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, anything like that, because they have okay. them. I mean, they never they never stock them deep, which is, you know, one of the tricks about being an independent author. They are never going to have tens of thousands of them in stock or anything, but they're uh, easy for them to reorder and there, there's no problem getting it. If people are, I mean, I know it's a hardcover, it's a bit more pricey, especially as an independent, but if people are also wanting to try Wolf's Head more inexpensively and don't mind reading digital, it's easy to find on Kindle as well. And then, you know, on top of it, there's excerpts on my, on my website and, you know, I have also like short stories I've done and all kinds right. of stuff like that too. So if you people really want to sample for free and you just want to sort of get a sense of how I draw and how I tell stories and whatnot, there's all kinds of short stories on my website that people can, right. can take a look at too. Good. So, so Vaughn, listen, when you, when you get in volume two, come out, you got to come back on because yeah. we can, you and I can literally talk for hours. Yeah. It is, um, we can talk for a long time about this and just incredibly impressed by the fact that, as you said, you're basically a self-taught art artist and your work is amazing. So oh, thank congratulations you. Thank on that. You. Well, I mean, that, that's, that, that's lovely. Thank you. I mean, mm -hmm. it's such an exciting time for comics and that's right. not to say there aren't frustrations and there aren't, you know, difficulties with it, but it is, it is such a wonderful time for, for comics. And, right. you know, it's, uh, you know, I, I hope people are, are just always reading them and always passing on, you know, recommendations and, you know, word of mouth, because that is the stuff is, you know, find stuff right. you love and share the love because that's a good point. Find, you know, if, when you find something you love, you got to share it. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it's got to spread like an infection, it, you know, in the, and again, yeah. in the best sense of the word is it's, it, that's, yeah. that is one of the things that I love. And I, I, I'm weird because I'll read stuff from the 1930s right to the present. Like I, I've got my hands right. on like old faucet comics right to, you know, like, you know, translated from Japanese or, or Korean or what have right. you, or French. And it's, right to the present it's it's 
that's damn that's yeah. fun you know yeah. that is just so much fun all right well thank you so much Vaughn. this has been great thank you for having me i really appreciate it Yeah, and it's really interesting. Like the AI itself, for those that might be listening to this podcast, and so like looking. So if you do go to like, um, if if you go to go to Vaughn Allen's website, it's, um, uh, hey, let me timestamp this. Hey, Daddy's doing a recording. Daddy's doing an interview. I have a kid that likes to try to sneak up on me. Six year old. <laughs> And she just got caught because she knocked over something and I heard uh, it. So I, I just had my two nephews.